Before we kick off with this week's episode of the Brendan O'Neill Show, I'd just like to take a second to tell you about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our new and thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spike supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Everything Spike does is free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. BLM also focuses on removing police from urban neighborhoods, and those include a lot of inner city neighborhoods. So the practical reaction to that has been a massive surge in crime. Last year, if I recall the data correctly, we had more murders in the USA than we've had any year since 1996. So we're at a 24 or 25 year high. We've lost about 4,500 black lives. And the cause of this is police pullbacks following the massive George Floyd riots. We've seen large-scale national rioting. So that's a very empirical effect. I mean, 5,000 young people or so were killed. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Wilfred Riley. Wilfred is an American political scientist, author and commentator and a columnist for Spiked. He is known for testing political claims and questioning things that too many people accept as true without thinking about it. He is the author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, an explosive book that explores hundreds of well-known hate crime allegations that later turned out to be false. And his latest book is Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, which brilliantly challenges the woke orthodoxy that says America is a deeply racist and sexist society. I want to start off by asking you about America and what life is like in America in the round, because one of the key narratives that has emerged over the past two years in particular is this view of America as an irredeemably racist country, founded in racism, still polluted by racism, possibly even a white supremacist country. And that doesn't tally with the research you've done, the things that you found out. So I want to start off by asking you a broad question, which is, why do you think this view of America has taken hold? And why do you think it's important to push back against it? Um, Quite frankly, as a center-right writer from the business world, I think that one of the reasons this is so prevalent is that discourse in America, and I suspect this is very true for you guys in the UK as well, is dominated to an unusual degree by people on the political left that don't like the country. So, I mean, if you, I recently, as an academic that's interested in this research, looked at the most recent numbers from Brooklyn University on the political breakdown of different academic fields. And of course, you expect there to be more, we might jokingly say hippies, more leftists in college than on a construction site. 
But the numbers were staggering. As I recall, in sociology, among those who answered the questionnaire at the top 100 colleges, there were 108 uh, Democrats or activist liberals, and there were zero conservatives. Mm -hmm. And the the figures were very similar across disciplines. As I recall, the most conservative, quote unquote, uh, academic field was economics, where there were only 5.4 Democrats or liberals to every one conservative. And I mean, these are the money boys. I mean, that that was a bit surprising. That was Mm -hmm. that was the most rock ribbed right wing of them. So and I, I suspect you'd find very similar numbers across the NGO sector outside of perhaps Christian or Muslim charities, uh, secondary education at the better prep schools, the media, so on down the line. So I, I think that a lot of this, these conversations that are being had sort of reflect what you might see on Twitter or Instagram more than the general population. Uh, the USA, if anything, the critique of Americans when you travel overseas is you know, arrogant, a bit conservative, a bit rubbish. So the, I don't, obviously I don't think this is true. Greatest country in the world, Gal Nerd. <laughs> but I mean, the the average American looks very different from the people that you would see in, say, a Twitter chat mm-hmm. group. And I think that second group has a lot of power over our institutions. So many of these debates that you see in academia, uh, if you're talking about, should we move the schools left from a Howard Zinn curriculum to a critical theoretic curriculum? These are being conducted among a a small fringe of the country. The reality is that actual history ranges from uh, Niall Ferguson, for example, or some of the people in 1776 Unites, where there there are even debates about what the legacy of the colonial past was. I mean, this is is legitimate and exists in academia over to Howard Zinn and then to critical theory. What we see in the spotlight very often just is that left fringe because it's become prevalent in those disciplines. I want to come back in a moment to the question of why that section of society hates its own country, why the contemporary left feels that way about the United States and also the contemporary left in the UK as well. But before we do that, I want to dig down into a few of the issues on which this narrative gets things wrong, because you've written about this extensively and very interestingly. And I think people will be interested to hear these arguments. So, for example, one of the things that we are told all the time is that black people in the US are being shot constantly by white cops. I mean, if you listen to the way in which it's reported, the headlines that are produced, the campaigns that are promoted by on social media and so on, you would get the impression that there is a kind of genocide. I'm sure some people have even used that word genocide to describe the relationship between white cops and, and um, uh, unarmed African-American men in particular. But the, the numbers don't bear out this theory, do they? So could, could you just give us a, a, a sense of what the reality is when it comes to that kind of violence? Sure. Um, hopefully I can provide more than a sense. Uh, these numbers are widely available. I discussed them in my book, Taboo, but uh, the Washington Post, uh, I, I, now it sounds kind of silly to say a completely nonpartisan source, but let's say a mainstream newspaper runs a full-on database called The Counted, which keeps track of every individual uh, black or for that matter, white, Latino shot in an encounter with police, killed by police in a typical year. So you're absolutely right that there's a presentation of essentially this law enforcement problem as something much more serious. Uh, Benjamin Crump, the well-known left of center attorney, actually wrote a book called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People, where he says or at least implies that, I mean, you'd assume from the language, tens of thousands of 
of people of color are killed every year by the U.S. system in some way or another. Cherno Biko, a Black Lives Matter activist, went on uh, primetime national news on Fox and said, well, at least once a day, you know, a completely innocent black man is, quote unquote, murdered by the police. Obviously, if it even needs to be said, no, that's not true. The total number of people shot by police in a typical year is about a thousand. Last year, which was by no means an unusually peaceful year, was 1,021. Generally, about a quarter of those are African-American, which when you adjust for a higher overall crime rate, a younger population isn't even particularly disproportionate. And the number shot while unarmed, while potential innocence is tiny. So we look at these cases, and I I think justifiably to some extent, but George Floyd and so on, and obviously that's the image of the issue. But the total number of unarmed black men that were killed by police in uh, 2020 was 18, you know, and you can discuss, I mean, the the Brits on average do a better job with this. I mean, you can discuss is 18, 18 too many and these sort of things, but there are 340 million people in the country. I mean, and this, this is something I would bring up even with COVID 2.5 to 3.1 million people die every year. Mm. I mean, humans are all unfortunately going to die. So in no real sense is this a massive epidemic problem. We just see it being wildly exaggerated. And last quick point on this, that has an effect. A Skeptic Research Center, the large heterodox think tank, recently released a well-done major study where they found that the average leftist thinks multiple thousands of unarmed brothers are killed every year by the police. So for people that identified as very liberal, very liberal or as just standard leftists, As I recall, 34% thought the number of unarmed black men killed every year by cops was about 1,000. It was 14 or 15% that thought it was about 10,000. And 7% at least thought it was more than that, quote unquote. So, I mean, to put that in perspective, there are only about 20,000 murders in the USA in a bad year. It may be half of those involve black people. So we're wildly overhyping a problem that exists, but that is very small. That's very, very clearly put. And in relation to another um, story that has taken hold, but may, may not actually be based in facts, is this idea that in the US, there is an incredibly fractured relationship between white people and black people. And this idea, you know, interracial crime is often talked about to an extraordinary degree, as if it's the prime form of crime. And also, we hear that there are tensions uh, between black and white people on campuses, in the workplace, and and this idea generally that it's very difficult for them to get along. I think of someone like Robin DiAngelo, I was on television with her here in the UK a year, about a year ago. And the impression you get from reading the work of someone like DiAngelo is that White people are all these kind of, you know, hamstrung, confused individuals who don't know how to relate to black people. And black people are all these victims who are constantly being microaggressed and harassed and demonized. So you get this sense that in America, it's a very difficult relationship between the races. But you've recently written that actually in the U.S., race relations are better than they've ever been. So that would strike a lot of people as a contrarian point of view. So, so how, how do you explain the reality of the relationship between different racial groups in the U.S. at the moment? Well, I, I think, again, some businessman saying we seem to get along pretty well in day-to-day life is a contrarian view <laughs> only in light of the incredible dominance 
of, again, media, academia, so on, by fringe radicals. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's accurate to say. I, don't, I mean, many of these people do solid research in their niche. I'm not insulting anyone. But if you look at American academic professors, at least in the social sciences, 17.6% of them identify as actual communists, or at least as Marxists. So I think that that's the perspective where a lot of this is coming from. When you hear these terms like intersectional microaggression, I mean, if if you're out on a football field in either the American or the European sense of that term, people don't talk like that. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a very specific genre that's influencing the debate. Um, Robin D'Angelo in particular, again, lovely person from all I've heard, but reading through white fragility, you get the impression that it would be virtually impossible to talk to someone with this perspective. You know, in any normal situation, first dinner, third date going well, like the the protocols in white fragility would seem to make it virtually impossible yeah. to do anything. I mean, she and there, there are these different encounters she talks about. I think it was her first date with a black guy or something like this, where she listed the racial sins of her family. I don't even know what I would do if I was at a bar with some upper class white woman and she started doing this. Probably just drink more, substantially more. But I mean, normal people, I don't think, interact in this way. To kind of get into statistics as opposed to sort of bad jokes and so on. No, interracial crime is not epidemic. You would again think this from the U.S. and to some extent U.K. mass media. So if you read through the New York Times, and I still take the time, it's a major global newspaper, but I mean, almost every day there's one of these stories. The the most recent one to go truly viral was the dog walking Central Mm. Park. Black guy was out birding and some woman came through watching her dog and was brutally racist to him. And there was was a week of coverage of this kind of thing. And this time, barbecue, Becky, pool patrol, Paula, all of this stuff. (laughs) The reality is, first of all, that interracial violent or hostile encounters are pretty rare. Uh, In the most recent year on record, there were about 600,000 crimes that involved either a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim. Uh, This would be 2018 reported in the 2019 BJS. The, The problem with this, though, is that there are about 20 million crimes in a year. If you add up the violent crimes and the very serious property crimes, carjacking, a burglary where someone invades the house, so on. There are 12 to 20 20 million crimes in the U.S. in a typical year. This is a bad year. So interracial violent crime would be, according to my calculations, something like 3.2% of all serious crime. Now, the, the second level of this also is that this in the media is generally presented as white on black. Mm. You know, it's virtually impossible for a black person just to go out and get a burger without being patted down by cops and shoved against walls by thugs and this kind of thing. In reality, while it's very rare, interracial violent crime is about 80% black on white. I mean, there are more white people. They, on average, have more money. We're a younger group. So what you see with a lot of this stuff is not just the denial, but almost the inversion of reality, where the presentation is, this is constant, and it's all coming from white goons, the reality is this is 3% of the crime, and it's mostly coming from urban black guys. So th- this creates this weird climate of distrust with the mass media, I think, where people, at least anyone, quote unquote, red-pilled, anyone from in the non-racist sense, but anyone from youth culture that knows this is mostly bullshit, that has a diverse group of friends, lives in a city. When you see a story in the papers, you no longer think, if you ever did, oh, well, that's probably true. You think almost what Russians did about Pravda. I wonder what really happened. Yeah. 
you know, why, why were both of these people in the Ramble in Central Park, which isn't exactly known for bird watching? What's really going on? That that's the normal <laughs> take that many people have now. Okay, one one more um, issue I'd like you to just shoot down in the way you have done those those two before we move on to the why of all, why all this stuff is happening and what we might do about it. Um, is this idea, which is very, very prevalent in the UK as well as in the US, this idea that any kind of disparity between racial groups in terms of achievement, educational performance, uh, promotions in the workplace, anything like that, any disparity, it can only be explained by racism. It's because racism is a, a system, it is uh, all-encompassing, and it, it keeps people down. And you've written for Spiked about how the idea of, of systemic racism has become like a conspiracy theory. It's this way of explaining everything. It's not necessarily backed up by the facts. And in some instances, non-white groups in the US are outperforming white groups in, in certain situations, and that's the same in the UK, particularly in the education system where white working class boys are actually at the bottom of the pile and Indian heritage children and Nigerian heritage children and so on are doing far better. So just explain to us what you mean when you say the idea of systemic racism is a conspiracy theory, because that's one of the phrases that rolls off the tongue of virtually every young person I meet. It's become this explanation for so much. How do you define that term and why do you think it, it is problematic? Well, and first of all, I think between myself and the editors who aren't an unaggressive bunch, the title of the piece actually was Systemic Racism is a Conspiracy Theory. Yeah. And every now and then it goes viral again on Twitter <laughs> and so on. So good to know. But essentially, Thomas Sowell, the OG, calls this the invincible fallacy, that human beings like to explain complex phenomena by attributing everything to one basic cause. So as he would put it, and I agree with this, arguing with the alt-right and so on, obviously another position I disagree with and mention in Taboo, mm -hmm. but this the, the attribution used to be to genetics, right? Yeah. So if there are gaps between blacks, whites, and Asians across multiple sectors of society, there must be some kind of genetic inferiority, the claim went. And they, they by no means could unpack genetic alleles at this point, so there's an element of just BS to this. But the argument is if, if we see a gap in, say, SAT testing performance, that would be attributed to genes probably up until the 50s or the 60s. And I mean, in the past, I think there have been even more questionable attributions like to sin in traditional Christian or Hindu theology. Why do some people outperform others? Karma. That's the phlogiston out there in the world. Now, I think that the political left, at least in the USA and Europe, has kind of shoehorned racism into that same role. So the idea of systemic racism, the standard definition of systemic racism is quite simply that gaps between groups have to be due to racism. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you listen to Kendi, Robin DeAngelo, Bell Hooks, that's that's all it means. So Dr. Kendi, Ibram Kendi, the American uh, social scientist, will very openly say this. And he actually invokes both incorrect positions. He says that the only two explanations for a gap in performance between two large groups, say Englishmen and Irishmen, must be either one, genetic inferiority, which he doesn't want to touch on, or two, some kind of racism. If you read his Vox piece, for example, no matter how subtle, so on down the line, ha that has to be the cause. The reality is that, as Sol and others pointed out decades ago, large groups that differ in terms of something as important or at least as notable as race or national ethnicity tend to differ in terms of literally dozens of other kind of cultural and situational variables. 
So, for example, the most common age for a black guy, this is the one I use in lectures to points become almost a cliche, is about 27. Most common age for a white guy is 58. Now, the actual median is closer than that. It's closer to 15 than to 30 years. But still, nonetheless, I mean, when you look at something like group incomes, you obviously first have to adjust for the fact that guy one is decades older than guy two. And it turns out that there are a ton of factors like this. Uh, one is just the region of the country people live in. So, for example, Asian Americans, not that they're not performing very well in the schools and so on, but in both the U.S. and the U.K. tend to be concentrated in large urban areas. There aren't a lot of necessarily recent Japanese immigrants farming in Minnesota mm. in more lower income areas. So that that's something that has to be considered when you're looking at income or testing, something like this. You know, study culture is very different. Asians and Nigerians, frankly, study more than white working class boys in the U.S. or the U.K. So what we find in sort of empirical, real social science is that when you adjust for these other things, most of the gaps that are attributed to racism just vanish. And a very simple way of saying this is if you took a black, white and Asian middle class boy from the same community, they went to a charter school, they have the same study habits, obviously same age, and you put those people out in the educational system post-secondary, in 10 years, you're probably going to see very, very similar outcomes. There are entire charter academies like KIPP and Success that, that do this in the USA, that keep track of this. So systemic racism, kind of getting to the point, is just the idea that these gaps have to be due to some kind of subtle prejudice. And that's replaced the idea that these have to be due to 10% or whatever genetic variation. But in reality, both are wrong. I mean, if, if you adjust for something as banal as the city people live in, you're knocking off massive chunks of each one of those gaps. So that that's the idea, and that's the critique of it. I mean, my response, that that just doesn't seem to be true. Mm. As a final line, systemic racism, logically, as a theory, can't explain why People from literally the great ancient rival societies of the West, China and Arabia and West Africa and so on. I mean, those were kind of the other three, India as well. You know, I mean, why they are beating Westerners right now. So the response has kind of been to say, well, they're white, which is another mm -hmm. column I did with you guys. Like the Asian and Nigerian students are reclassified as Caucasian. <laughs> and then you're just getting into nonsense because they're literally black and Chinese. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just at any rate, that, that's my response to systemic racism. A lot of the time when we're streaming online content, it can really turn our brains off. We can waste hours watching mindless entertainment. But then there's Wondrium. This is a streaming service that will expand your mind. I've recently been captivated by the program The Great Revolutions in Modern History. It gives a comprehensive overview of history's great upheavals, taking in everything from the French Revolution to the counterculture and civil rights movements of the 1960s, from Gandhi's revolutionary nonviolence to Mao's cultural revolution. It covers the good, the bad, the inspiring and the terrifying. Wondrium has thousands of audio and video learning experiences to feed our curiosity. It goes so much further than what you'd find searching on the web. Wondrium's content is fun and exciting, and it gives us access to a world of knowledge from top experts and storytellers. There are documentaries, tutorials, how-to guides, and more covering practically any subject you could imagine. And as well as lots of mind-blowing original content, Wondrium also has all of our favorite programs from The Great Courses Plus. Join me and experience your own mind-blowing moments with Wondrium. 
Right now, my listeners can get this special offer, a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. Just go to wondrium.com slash Brendan to sign up now. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. Wondrium.com slash Brendan. I want to talk now a little bit about why why this stuff is dangerous. I mean, we can make fun of it, we can disprove it, and you've done a very good job of that in your writing over the past few years. But I'd like to talk about something you touched upon briefly earlier on, which is why this obsession with the idea of ingrained racism, the idea that America is a is a horribly racist country, why this is a problem, and not just for white people who are frequently referred to as being racist. You know, they're born racist, they probably always will be racist, but it's bad for African Americans too, because it gives them a particular sense that they are living in a society in which it will be very difficult for them to progress. And I'm assuming that that will have an impact on how people relate to society, how they relate to their opportunities and so on. But just to kick off on this question of why it's why this ideology or these arguments are a problem, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter in particular. And you've talked a fair amount about how Black Lives Matter is not good for Black American people. And one clear example, I think, is in relation to the discouragement of policing in certain areas and the impact that that has on crime rates. So the anti-police sentiment, the defund the police argument, the notion that it's the police are the greatest enemy of the black community and therefore they should be expelled. Could you just talk a bit about the impact that has, that has had, including, if you can, over the past year when defund the police really became almost this global slogan and the impact that that had on certain communities? Well, first of all, I've never really understood how black, white, ethnic conflict in the USA became such a global movement. <laughs> um, I mean, when I see people and obviously you admire, you know, the ambition and the intensity of the young as you age and focus more on, you know, making money and sipping scotch. But I mean, when you see these passionate kids out there in the streets in Stockholm Mm. with Black Lives Matter flags and so on, I mean, it might be a better idea to work out your own issues (laughs) with immigration in your own country. I mean, the the number of Eidos black Americans in Stockholm has to be under (laughs) 10,000. I mean, it's I don't I don't see the logic of this at all. But you're right. I mean, obviously, these slogans, Black Lives Matter, you know, all humans are people. So on these these have a stirring force that pulls against the heartstrings. The question is what the actual practical effects of this stuff have been. Um, I think empirically they've mostly been negative as the violent civil rights movement in the USA was in the sixties and seventies. One of the things people forget is that alongside Martin Luther King and these other sort of dignified Southern middle-class people marching and negotiating with Kennedy and demanding rights There was an entire wave of the kind of stuff we're seeing now at that point. I mean, the weathermen conducted or attempted something like 2,000 bombings between 71 and 72. I mean, you had H. Rat Brown, you had the Panthers, you had SNCC, and all of these were diverse, very diverse, even at that time, groups of violent urban kids that wanted to change the government. Whereas Dr. King and, and those brothers essentially wanted to be part of society, able to compete for leadership positions, able to lead in the military. You can have an integrated church. That was a big focus of Dr. King's. So there is a big distinction between those two movements. And my my basic opinion is that the second radical movement then and now was pretty useless. 
All it did was mobilize that sort of right wing Nixon, John Birch backlash. So you had two violent groups clashing in the streets, which is also something you've seen previously in Russia and Germany. And that's actually how the Nazis rose. There was constant fighting between fascists, socialists, communists, and what became Nazi youth groups. Everyone got extremely practiced at this kind of violence. Violence was accepted as political. And the fascists essentially beat the communists and ended up eventually taking over the country. So th- this sort of thing, I don't really think there's a place for it in civilized countries. There, there are two specific effects, though, of the BLM constant struggle narrative. One of them, the political scientist Eric Kaufman recently wrote, again, a serious, fairly well-received paper for a think tank, the Manhattan Institute, rather than a journal, but downloaded, as I recall, a couple hundred thousand times by this point. And part of the paper is simply him administering a series of readings from kind of one of these pro-black texts talking about institutional racism to black American youth, boys, as I recall. And then 10 minutes or so later, asking them a series of questions about whether they feel able to succeed. And almost unbelievably, but I I would say this is probably replicable. I mean, this is a serious experiment. Those young black kids who read a passage from, say, Ta-Nehisi Coates about the constancy of ethnic conflict, how difficult it is to be black, so on, were something like 10 percent less likely to say, Mm -hmm. I can achieve my dreams. I can do what I want. In contrast to other black kids or black individuals who'd been given a passage that was just a neutral description of history, like the ancestors of black people were conquerors who launched the great Bantu migration. But in recent years in countries like South Africa and the USA, we've been losing to the whites. Now everyone's roughly equal. Do you feel you can compete? The people that received the second passage almost universally said yes, although with some reservations about, you know, everyone's ancestors, which is correct. The people that received the first passage felt uniquely unable to compete. So I I think that's an effect of this kind of content being drummed into your head from probably fifth grade on, of course. That may be why so many kids decide to pursue useless radicalism. Mm. There's at some level an idea, well, as in this racist society, I couldn't compete in mathematics. So that that's certainly a negative effect. And I, I would imagine that the white kids are constantly told that they're racists and bigots and your focus should be making up for the, the racial wars of 150 years ago. They're probably not all that focused on their physics homework either. So I, I don't I don't really see that this is there. There's a religious element to it. Right. I mean, there are great Catholic texts about sin that I might read before training for a marathon or something like that. But I don't think that day-to-day consumption of that kind of thing <laughs> about human flaws would be very useful in academia or in business. This is this is a new sort of theology for a new faith. But the second point you raised is a lot more practical as versus what are the lingering potential psychological effects of reading this kind of introspective stuff. The, the second point you made was that BLM also focuses on removing police from urban neighborhoods, and those include a lot of inner city neighborhoods. So the practical re- reaction to that has been a massive surge in crime. Last year, if I recall the data correctly, we had more murders in the USA than we've had any year since 1996. So we're at a 24 or 25 year high. We've lost about 4,500 black lives. Well, actually, about half those people would have been poor whites and Hispanics who also matter. So, I mean, we've lost, there's no reason to racialize. We've lost a little under 5,000 lives. And the, the only cause for this, except a minor COVID effect, that might be a fifth of it, I would say. But the cause of this is police pullbacks following the massive George Floyd riots. 
we've seen large scale national rioting. I mean, um, the Commission on COVID and Criminal Activity, if I have the name correctly, literally looked at the start of the murder surge and the surge and other things, aggravated assaults and so on, and dates it to late May of 2020, which is when George Floyd died. So following that, you saw the pullbacks, you saw at least the start of defunding, and you saw a surge in crime. So that's a very empirical effect. I mean, 5,000 young people or so were killed. Those are scary numbers and and very well laid out there. Um, in, in relation to the the potential psychological impact of, of reading this stuff or just being exposed to this stuff quite a lot in schools and universities, this notion that you live in a horrible racist country and you can't really understand other people, um, it, I want to talk a little bit about something you've written about very well, which is also how that makes victimhood not only something that is bestowed upon people, whether they want it or not, but it makes victimhood something quite alluring. And it can be tempting to define yourself in that way because you know you'll have a certain amount of social cachet in the contemporary period if you are a victim of all these forces that are constantly being talked about. And you've written about the the phenomenon of hate crime hoaxes, the most famous being uh, Jussie Smollett, for example. Um, there are others that have taken place on campuses. And um, it's interesting because those are quite extreme examples, I guess. But when I speak to young people on campuses in the UK, I'm always struck that even at a smaller level, they are always very, very keen to define themselves as victims. So I will meet very posh, well-brought-up, well-connected young women, for example, who will say they are victims of structural sexism, as if society has been purposely built to hold them down. And these are women studying at Oxford University or Cambridge University. You know, they have opportunities that the vast majority of women don't have. So there's that kind of people get drawn into a definition of themselves as as victims. So could you just... Well, firstly, could you just say something about the phenomenon of, of hate crime hoaxes? I think listeners will be very interested to hear that. And also why you think victimhood has become a kind of attractive badge that people want to wear. Yeah, sure. I can I can speak to both. So obviously I wrote the book Hate Crime Hoax, which looks at a very recognizable phenomenon in the USA and to a certain extent in the modern UK, modern continental Europe which is the simple fact that a large number of very highly reported, I don't, I don't necessarily extend this down to the level of neighborhood fistfights and so on, but a very large percentage of these highly reported hate incidents in modern American in particular life, Jussie Smollett, uh, this might be more of an incident, but Covington Catholic, mm-hmm. Erica Thomas, the congresswoman who claimed she was attacked in a posh upscale grocery store, um, Air Force Academy, where a general came to the campus of one of our service academies and spoke out against racism. You know, Duke lacrosse going back a little bit. Kansas State, the horrible slurs scrawled across mm-hmm. all of these upscale vehicles. The University of Missouri, at least many components of that years long issue they had there. Uh, in 2015, Yasmin Saweed, the torn hijab on the train and the potentially sexual mob. Um, Every almost everything I just mentioned, except for a few components of the Missouri situation, turned out to be a fake. Mm. And this is something that I had become aware of uh, years before in Chicago, when in kind of that graduate student community there, we had a string of these incidents. Uh, the popular LGBT serving bar Velvet Ultra Lounge, for example, was burned to the ground. These horrible anti-gay slurs were written throughout the building. 
You know, there was a series, there were a series of nooses found on the campus of Wisconsin Parkside, a very pleasant little shy bourbon institution. And again, all of those, and there were four or five more cases, Derek Coquelin at U Chicago, those turned out to be complete fakes. So I became interested in how common that phenomenon is. And when I began researching the book, it turns out it's, it's extremely common. Uh, my initial data set was concentrated, not entirely contained during, but concentrated during a period of less than five years and contained, you know, 409 of these case studies. That since expanded, it's now 600 some case studies with about a thousand cases in them, you know, and there are less than 7,000 American serious hate crimes in a year. And only about one in 10 of those, per my estimate, is nationally or regionally reported to the extent where I could find it and see if it became a hoax or not. So out of a pool of perhaps 700 famous cases per year, over a period of five or six years, I've found, you know, five or 600 that turned out not to be real. That That's an unusual, unusual percentage of fake or unreal content there. And that, that data set is very available to anyone that wants it, by the way. It's a, it's a real thing that exists. It hasn't been uh, significantly challenged, at least in terms of the, each of those cases having occurred. So that is the substance of the the reality of hate crime hoaxing, at least as I document it. One of the things that I do kind of redirecting here, one of the things that I do find is that an incredibly large number of these incidents, uh, more than a third, are concentrated on college or university or prep school campuses. In fact, almost everything I just mentioned from Duke Lacrosse to Air Force Academy in the very modern day was a collegiate environment uh, hoax incident. So this kind of ties into this broader question of have we given victimization cachet for sort of young upper middle class people? And I, I think the very obvious, honest answer is yes. So to give a little context there, when I talk to, say, younger friends or cousins or mentees about just what's going on in, the, in their personal lives, because no, no one in my group happens to be a racist, probably about half of them have partners that would identify that are white, that would identify as Caucasian. But almost none of these women I've found, and I'm not mocking them, would just identify as like a well-adjusted upper middle-class white girl. Almost all of them would claim some kind of secondary identity, like I'm bisexual, mm. non-binary. You know, I identify as Jewish or Arabian, Mina, rather than white. I've had people tell me things like I'm a person of size, which is a reference to a bit chubby. That's not a joke at all. So obviously people are trying to claim these distinguishers. And I, I think the ultimate example of this would be, what is it? Governor Cuomo's daughter recently mm -hmm. came out as demisexual. Yeah. She said that she had an announcement to make, talk to the LGBT press. And I was looking at this and the literal... I mean, we both joked about this earlier, but the literal description of a demisexual seems to be someone that won't sleep with you without going on several dates. Yeah. <laughs> it's you need to be you need to be attracted to someone through a process of relationship building <laughs> before you let physical attraction take over. Like I was reading this description and you kind of wonder what percentage of women or of people I suppose this would be yeah. 30, 40. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you're going to see more people claiming these sort of identities, you know, like. Let's wait a little longer would be my sexual preference. I mean, then a, a disturbing number of people, Sarah, are gay, you know. So, and I'm sure there may be a few people that literally can't feel attraction until they've been in a relationship for such and such a period of time. But I think that there are going to be a large number of normal middle-class kids that claim these sort of identifiers to kind of stop their black buddies 
from using their exaggerated oppressed identity to hold them right. back. Right. So, like, don't tell me that I'm a white man. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a demisexual, polyfluid. You know, <laughs> that that's going to become far more common than it already is. I would bet. I have no doubt at all that that is correct. On on the question of victims, what's very interesting is that there will there will be an exaggeration of the victimhood of some groups to such an extent that people will claim a victimized experience, even if it didn't actually occur, and they'll be very readily believed. And I think the instantaneous nature of the belief contributes to people's willingness to make these claims because they know that if they say they were they had their hijab pulled off or they saw anti-black graffiti on campus, they know there will be very people will very quickly believe that. And that kind of there's a symbiotic relationship, I think, between the willingness of the uh, commentariat wing of society to believe these things and then the corresponding willingness of people to make them up. But at the same time, there is a reluctance to discuss the victimised nature of other racial groups or, or social groups. So, for example, there have recently been a large number of attacks on Asians in America, and there have been some. There's been some extraordinarily horrific footage going around of people being attacked in the streets, people being punched and kicked. There has recently been an outburst of violent anti-Semitism in the wake of the most recent Israel-Gaza conflict. Not only in the US but across Europe, there has been horrific and explicit displays of anti-Jewish hatred. But those kinds of groups are the victimization, the legitimate victimization of some of those groups tends to get downplayed by the identitarian set, either because it doesn't fit in with their narrative. So how do you ex- how do you explain that phenomenon where there is this super keenness to believe that some groups are permanent victims and, and will never be a normal part of society? alongside this unwillingness to accept that Asians and Jews and others uh, face a pretty hard time sometimes in our society. I mean, this is this is almost a pure question of narrative fit. Mm. The narrative would be something like subordinate groups, although I don't like that title, minority groups are poor because of white male oppression. Now, the reality is that this doesn't fit the facts at all. The reality is that in most civilized is a term that comes to mind, or certainly Western, uh, the Asians tend to be a little more insular. But in most modern Western societies, there are minority groups that outperform the majority. And there are minority groups that underperform the majority, because everyone for all our flaws is allowed to compete. So I mean, in the USA, for example, Jews, West Africans, um, South Asians, such as Indians, East Asians, People from a lot of the other historic human civilizations outperform white Anglos on average. Um, on the other hand, you have other groups, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, African-Americans are still you know, half a lap behind. So on down the line, uh, Cajuns that underperform the Anglo white majority. I mean, that, that's just a fact. But that that narrative doesn't really provide any sort of overall basis for something like pro-minority affirmative action. So it's kind of ignored. And you see the ignoring going in two directions. The first the first way this happens is that the vast majority of poor and working class people who are white are not discussed by anyone. They don't support the narrative of sort of the edge right that, you know, rule Britannia. You know, we are a people of (laughs) conquerors. We have this in America as well. But they also certainly don't support the narrative of the BLM left that what causes, you know, crime ridden housing projects or estates or something like that is racism. If you go to a project or a state and it's all white, then you have to start talking about class issues and you have to get into some complex stuff. 
And I mean, I have, I live in um, the Louisville region of Kentucky. I live in Frankfurt. But I mean, there's some very, very poor, very urban areas here that are probably 90% Caucasian. So when you see that, you have to get beyond the picture and ask, what can we do for poor people? How do fathers matter? What's up with this culture of working class white boys? You mentioned this in England as well. So on. Uh, it's tough to do that. And a lot of people don't want to. I mean, I honestly, I don't think the leadership of Black Lives Matter has the best interests of poor whites in mind. It's not really their thing. So that group is ignored. The other group that's ignored until they have to be attacked would be people from minority groups that are outperforming everyone. Because it's very, very tempting to look at a Jewish or Asian shopkeeper and then look at, you know, a black, blue-haired college woman with two picket signs and say, well, why don't you just do what he's doing? Now, there are some semi-legitimate answers to that, but the reality is that highly successful minority business folk threaten this whole we can't get ahead narrative. So Asians, Jews, you know, Nigerians, Indians, Arabs, they aren't much discussed at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you never see a sign that says Arab American lives matter. Mm-hmm. Although post 9-11, this is probably the most discriminated against group in the country. Yeah. I don't think you could deny that. So there's there is that duality. If you if your narrative is white man, bad white man on top, minorities, good minorities on bottom. And you see entire minority groups that are known for aggressive business success that are out earning everyone. There's not much you can say about them. So you you just ignore them or minimize them. The the Asian attacks thing is interesting in this regard, because what's responsible for at least half of the attacks is black and Latino urban hostility towards successful Asian neighbors. Mm. It's like old guys getting mugged because they might have a lot of cash in their pocket. It's the shopkeeper having his windows broken out because people think his prices are 20 cents too high. So it's very clear what this is as someone who's lived in a big city. Now, again, in poor white districts, there's some of this against Asians as well. But then everyone just calls it what it is. You know, this person's a racist jackass. There's, there's no need for the nonsense and the, the covering of lies. But it, because this intersection of blacks and Asians does fall into that, that point of narrative, this is where you see crazy things like Black Lives Matter marches against Asian hate, where like neighborhood young black radical guys are carrying signs that say, don't hurt Asians. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, bro, it's not the white supremacists <laughs> that, are, that are doing that. I mean, it might be some of the guys here, mm-hmm. you know, so... I'm sure there are people there that are totally well-intentioned, but to some extent, this is just a distraction from the reality of a class narrative that goes a lot deeper than the race narrative we've been trained to notice. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel, cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. I want to ask you a little, uh, one question about class. And you talked earlier about how the left is increasingly dominant in academic institutions and other areas of life which play a role in forming opinion, creating ideologies and so on. And, and, and hence we have 
the kind of ideas that we currently have. But to what extent do you think this is this is a very new kind of left? Because in the past, the left would have been very interested in the issue of class, very interested in the issue of cross-race solidarity, in fact, in relation to people understanding their class interests and acting from that basis rather than understanding themselves as black or white or Chinese or whatever else it might be. So I often think that identity politics in some ways represents an abandonment of the politics of class in favour of something that feels a bit easier. It's quite virtue signally, you know, it's quite straightforward to say Black Lives Matter. It's very difficult to explain what might need to be done to radically transform the fortunes of poorer people across society. Um, so do, do you think this left, the contemporary left, has, has moved away from what the left traditionally was about? And do you think that explains why someone like Donald Trump, who is not left-wing by any stretch of the imagination, is able to pick up large numbers of votes from white working-class people who might feel abandoned by the left that once claimed to speak for them? Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty obviously the case. So what what you have right now with the left in the USA and much of the West, I would say, is a left that has been partly purchased by the corporate world. Mm. I, I can't think of a better way to put it. So the focus has drifted away from class and union issues, which were always the two bedrock points of the old left, old labor for you guys, we called them the old reds or the backbenchers in Congress. Bernie Sanders is an old red. Mm. I mean, at least until recently, like he's a guy just out there ranting about class issues mm. and going to Cuba and so on. But we used to have quite a few guys like that. There's definitely been a transition. And there's really a lot to say here. I personally, I was active to some extent, as many urban American grad students were with the Occupy movement. I eventually left. It was too silly and hippie. But they made some good points about social class. I mean, you had just seen the U.S. economy destroyed by the actions of the major banks and trading floors, sales floors, so on. The real estate market had collapsed. The economy was down 10 percent. There clearly were economic issues. And these got to the point where you had these diverse groups of people, you know, camping out in front of Wall Street and LaSalle Street with manifestos and attending television crews and so on. And... After that movement collapsed, a lot of people from Tim Weiss to Tucker Carlson have jokingly said big business has decided they're never going to allow that again. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, from that point forward, you have seen corporate donations to the left that match those to the right. I think that's easily fair to say, if not exceed those to the right. And you've seen the way I would put this is as oppression in the modern West has moved toward being entirely class based i.e. the effect of past racism on Eidos Blacks, for example, is that we are more likely to be poor or working class. That's the effect. If you are wealthy and black, you are treated as a lord. You are treated as a wealthy person. You know, Oprah Winfrey has no problem with shopping. The issue is that there are more black people that are in that southern, rural, urban, lower income environment. But as this transition has happened, you have seen the corporately funded left move entirely past a discussion of class issues from fatherhood to retraining and into a discussion of niche race and gender issues. And this is something that corporate America doesn't mind at all, mm. by the way, mm. because what you're now discussing is reshuffling the deck chairs mm. in the lower upper class. That's what that's what most of this breaks down to. When people say the CIA doesn't have a surfeit of gay spies, we need more gay agents. 
I mean, first of all, I doubt anyone really cares what the sexual preference of the person torturing them is. <laughs> I mean, the CIA is our uh, assassination and espionage agency. I, mean, <laughs> I, I personally wouldn't care at all if it was a woman shooting at me if one of my books went too far. But at any rate, I mean, if you're talking about this kind of thing, you're not talking about what can we do in a housing project that's 40 yeah. percent white, 60 percent black. None of the boys have a father. So corporate America is fine with the, this first line of discourse. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Skittles take the rainbow colors off the candy during Pride Month, which, by the way, saved them about a quarter dollar a bag <laughs> because only one rainbow matters during Pride and this, this sort of crap. So that that's that's where we are. And it's been extremely successful with the people who are normally the vocal faces of the left, which is, again, upper middle and low upper class media personalities, writers, professors, because they're fine having these conversations. You know, should we move out uh, a few of the aging white legacies for about equally qualified, younger, perhaps affirmative action admits? Well, let's discuss that. But that that entire discussion avoids class topics like outsourcing and so on. So I, I personally view it as useless from an old left perspective. Um, I, I suspect we'll see it for a while, though, because having this conversation hurts no one in the chattering classes. This, this was also a factor with lockdown, by the way. Mm. I mean, the endless discussions about when to lift the lockdowns and so on. These were taking place entirely in academic forums, entirely in journals, entirely in the better, if you will, regular periodicals. And all of the people that were participating in the discussion still had a job. So you were able to have what I would describe a, as a let them eat masks attitude. Um, you know, if <laughs> someone hadn't been on their job site for six months, oh, well, they can... They can go on the national dole. They can go on U.S. insurance here. I mean, it's there wasn't much sympathy for those people. I completely agree with that. And I think the ease with which corporations can engage with this contemporary left is is very, very striking. And you only have to look at how people like Kendi and D'Angelo, who we talked about earlier, are paid an extraordinary amount of money to go into businesses essentially and tell people how to behave i mean corporations the capitalist class is very comfortable with this new ideology that is obsesses more over the management of racial relationships than it does talk about the issues of class and pay and poverty and cultural tensions and so on i really agree with that um i, I want to ask you a question about lockdown in a moment where, at the very end which is obviously not enough time but there you go but firstly before we do that i want to briefly touch upon um, just how serious all this stuff in relation to identity politics, just how serious all that stuff is getting. And I want to talk about the 1619 project. Um, as a non-American, I've always found this project extraordinary and um, very backward and very regressive because what you have here, and you know this because you are part of the 1776 pushback, you have mm -hmm. this attempt to redefine the entire foundation of the United States of America. And the reason that's important, even to someone like me who comes from a long way away, is that the foundation of the United States of America was an incredibly positive moment in human history. This was a nation founded upon, uh, founded to be a democratic nation that believed in freedom. Now, people can point out that it failed on that front for quite a few decades. It didn't include every person in the project. We all know this to be true. 
But the idea of creating a nation that would be founded on those ideals, which at the time was unique, pretty unique, was is extraordinary and inspiring. So this attempt to redefine American history to the moment when slaves arrived, to the moment when slavery became a, a phenomenon in America, that strikes me as a very serious blow against the idea of America and against the idea of progress and enlightenment. So could you just explain a little bit to our listeners about why you thought it was important to get involved in 1776 Unites and to defend that moment of 1776 and and its importance? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, for anyone who's not aware of this, the 1619 Project is a journalistic project of the New York Times magazine, which argues that the true founding of the United States was the year 1619. And 1619, of course, is the year the first slaves of African descent. And again, you can you can ask, why was this year picked? Why not the year the first Europeans landed on the continent? These would have been people of Spanish extraction who had both African slaves and Caucasian indentured servants and so on. I mean, why this particular targeting point? Because that implicates the English descent tradition of America would be my answer. But at any rate, the, the argument of the 1619 Project is that Slavery was the thing that truly defined the USA. Our beginning year was the year the slaves arrived. The reason we fought the Revolutionary War was to preserve slavery, which by that point, even the Brits were abolishing. Virtually everything unique in American culture comes out of slavery and so on down the line. Uh, It turns out that a great deal of this is simply put nonsense. So Britain, to her credit, was discussing the abolition of slavery in 1776, but this was for the home island. Slaves weren't freed in the overseas Brit colonies, which we were at the time until 1833 or something like this. I mean, 50 years after the Declaration. This is an undisputed fact in real, regular history, by the way. I mean, it's simply a recorded date. So, and a great deal of this stuff, I mean, it's difficult to argue that Indian or Irish immigration to the USA, two of our great groups, Italian-American immigration, was due to black slavery or white-black conflict here, as opposed to the potato famine in the home island. I mean, that's an incredibly arrogant, Amerocentric perspective. They, they obviously, the Irish are coming for a reason. So there, there are plenty of critiques of 1619. And as you mentioned, the 1776 Unites Initiative, available at 1776unites.com in terms of anything from booking speakers to our school curriculum, is a direct response to that. It began as sort of the black business and social science communities reply to 1619 and grew well beyond that because as part of everything from speakers forums to individual members consulting requests on we were we began to be asked a great many things about our take on america and we decided to provide that material so 1776 i think has actually been very successful in beating back a lot of the 1619 claims because of the massive kind of cliche Guevara left-wing control of the media, generally when they lose a round, you just see the discussion of whatever it was end. There's no concession to the other side. But I think in the the critical race theoretic debate with Chris Rufo and those guys, or in the 1619 debate with 1776, when people like John Sibley Butler started coming on board, I, I think that's what happened. I don't think anyone takes the idea that we fought the revolution to keep the slaves seriously anymore, so on. But The reason 1619 mattered is that it's one sword stroke in kind of an ongoing war, which is the attempt to relabel the USA and, in fact, the West as some kind of global cradle of sin. Mm -hmm. So the, the narrative from the crit left side here is 
the USA is defined by two things. One is the conquest of the mighty, highly civilized indigenous peoples. And the other is the enslavement of Africans, which built the entire economy. And I'm, I'm using the strong form of their position. The re- there's a very easy response to this, which would be it, pre-1954, when conquest and warfare were legal and were practiced everywhere in the world and were endorsed by all of the great states of color, Japan and Ethiopia and so on. During this period, the USA, over about 400 years, clashed with a total population of about 5 million native North Americans who were members of warrior tribes that were culturally impressive, but that in terms of tech were still in literally the Stone or the Bronze Age. I mean, no negative you know, moral implications there. We defeated some of them, displaced some of them, and some of them live here today. If you travel to the west of the United States, a great deal of it is Indian land where the tribes are sovereign. So that would be the take on part one of that. And part two would be, and yes, while slavery was legal, between six and 12% of the U.S. population was made up of the enslaved descendants of captured African warriors who were freed in 1865 at the cost of a war. So there's no minimization there, for example, you know, the well-generaled Iroquois army or something. But there's a big difference between displaced 5 million people with 350 million people and many of their descendants remain and country founded on a genocide and we learned everything from them. The first happens to be true. When I think about what the founding of the U.S., what built the USA, it wasn't, although I honor my black and Irish ancestors for doing this work, you need hardworking, normal, working class people. And obviously the slaves don't even fit the conventional definition of that. They didn't ask to come here. But much as I admire the people that built our roads and railroads and so on, what built the USA was the Constitution, Mm -hmm. the Declaration of Independence, the creation of a modern industrial state, which involved... um, a great deal of technology taught to us by or borrowed from or stolen from during military conflicts, the Brits. Like there was an entire ongoing Western industrial revolution at the time of the American rise, as every schoolboy knows or used to, school child. And it was that that really defined the growth of cities like New York, Boston. I don't want to get into like the blah, blah, blah zone here. But the idea that what defined us was, say, our historical war with Mexico or something, that's not a standard that's applied to any other country. You know, what defined China wasn't clashes with the Tibetans or the Mongols, as brutal as those might have been on all sides. It was, you know, the imperial dynasty, the technology, the building of the wall, so on. And the same for America. Absolutely. Really agree with that. And I think the thing that irritates me most about the 1619 project, which you laid out very well there, is that it just undermines the revolutionary intent that was behind the creation of the United States of America. And in many ways, it's a counter-revolutionary movement. It's essentially saying the revolution didn't matter. All those swirling, brilliant ideas don't matter. All that matters is the horrible history that may have taken place before that. So it's a very counter-revolutionary idea. And of course, the irony being that it presents itself as progressive, but it's not really progressive in the meaningful sense of the word. And I think everyone should check out 1776 Unites because uh, on your website, not least because it's a very good example of why it's worth pushing back against the excesses of identity politics and, and woke culture and so on, because it can sometimes feel very frustrating when you read these ideas or hear these ideas and feel that 
they are dominant in contemporary culture, but it is worth critiquing them. It is worth pushing back. And I think 1776 Unites really proves that. Okay, my final question for you. I've not left enough room for this question at all, so please forgive me. But um, I just want to get your sense of where you think we're going in relation to lockdown and how free you think we will be once lockdown ends. You, you wrote an incredibly successful piece, a widely shared piece for Spiked, questioning very early on, in fact, in, in the phase of lockdown um, in April last year, questioning the idea that there is a relationship between locking a, a state down and limiting the number of COVID-19 infections and deaths. And a lot has happened since then. America is coming out of lockdown. Britain is coming out of lockdown. Um, it's seven days from this recording of this podcast, we will have Freedom Day, which is when the government will graciously return to us the civil liberties we spent 350 years fighting for. So the question I want to ask you is, what impact do you think the lockdown period will have on our sense of ourselves as citizens, on our sense of our society as free societies? Do you think this is going to scar our societies for a long time? Or do you think we will be able to get over this moment? Yeah, I, I think that lockdowns in response to COVID-19 outside of isolated locales like a few megacities or senior centers were an insane move. <laughs> I am not a medical doctor. However, I am a fairly well-known data analyst who teaches quantitative methods at a solid U.S. state university. I, I think the evidence was not there. We saw a panic. The panic was driven by you guys are responsible for one of these, although we own the rest. But a series of very bad papers, um, mm -hmm. Neil Ferguson's prediction of two or three million deaths, was it? I mean, so I think that's that's what happened. And I don't think that that was logically justified at any point. I'm actually pulling up. So when you mentioned the article I wrote for Spike, that actually became a piece. I initially imagined this as a journal article. It was actually bought, basically. It was used in American business consulting by America's Majority Foundation. You can find the piece online where I look at the correlations between various types of state protocols and deaths in the state, if we're being very blunt. And I simply don't find much of one. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, with a few exceptions that stayed totally open, like South Dakota, but generally, those U.S. states which didn't lock down at all. I mean, you can see the data on Florida and Texas for that second round. They did lock down the first time yeah. very easily, did not do notably worse in terms of number of deaths, deaths per capita, deaths per capita with various regression independent variables adjusted for than those states that did lock down. Um, they simply incurred far fewer massively destructive costs. The top two U.S. states in terms of deaths and deaths per cap were blue New York and New Jersey. I would actually, again, not to get into full wonk mode, but I'd refer your uh, watchers here to the paper, Full Lockdown Policies in Western Europe Countries Have No Evident Impact on the COVID-19 Pandemic. That's on MedRx right now. I believe that's been picked up by a major journal. That's by the German, if I have this correct, Thomas Mounier, M-E-U-N-I-E-R. Actually, that might be a Frenchman. But I mean, just it, there's not a massive amount of evidence for a significant, let's say, greater than 10 to 12 percent positive impact of lockdowns. I actually didn't have an objection to masks. I wore a light but highly effective Mylar mask when I was in public during the peak of it. I mean, and it protects seniors. I mean, we had an organization, mostly young men shopping for the elders in my neighborhood. 
don't do stupid things like the minor league baseball teams in Kentucky. Even now, we haven't been locked down for nine months in mm-hmm. this state. But I mean, we've done things like prevent large gatherings at outdoor festivals, raves by the river and so on. I mean, so there are obviously logical things you could do to fight the spread of a disease. But lockdowns, especially given all of the exceptions, where like every working class person you knew had an essential job, there's no evidence that they did much of anything. You're essentially letting 50% of the population out for 90% as much time while restricting everyone else with a whole series of idiotic rules, no running outdoors alone and so on. So that that didn't work. That's something to keep in mind for a future pandemic. What you would want to do, and this is my opinion as the data guy, and I'd yield to the doctor at the table if this was a panel around a mayor or something, sometimes. But I mean, what you'd want to do, it seems, is protect seniors. And that wouldn't be very difficult to do. I mean, 55% of all U.S. deaths, if I recall correctly, came out of nursing homes. So we're not just talking about old people. You're talking about having the nurses work week-long shifts like the French did in the nursing facility, Mm -hmm. the memory care facility. I mean, that would be point one. Certainly cancel the baseball games and the outdoor raves and so on. Cancel large super spreader events. The reason South Dakota struggled almost alone among the red states was probably Sturgis. So... I mean, you you can show your independence maybe without having a 300,000 person, you know, motorcycle and sex rally. Like there is an element of taste, you know, come on, buddy. But just so stop super spreader events, yeah, masks, sure. And there are actually a lot of things that were rarely discussed, like the plexi pylons and a lot of retail buildings that I actually wouldn't mind having stay up as opposed to the old joke about people coughing on you. You're in line with 10 guys. We, we can restrict that stay four feet away and so on. But in the future, I don't think that locking people indoors with their relatives who just got back from work Mm. in a shared air environment, Mm. I don't think that worked. It had a, again, every paper I've seen, less than 10% of impact on death. So now to get into the second part of your question, whenever I say that, people respond and say, but, you know, a 10% increase in a 10% increase in the death rate. That's what COVID was. Our death rate's 3 million a year. We had 300,000 extra from COVID, 333 last year. And, you know, 10% of that would be 30,000 people. When I make this point, like we can't just lock everyone down to prevent the 10% and the 10%. In fairly high level strategic meetings, I've heard people say things like, well, you're killing 30,000 people. The flip of this, though, is that the other alternative is locking up 350 million people rather than telling people to selectively protect their grandmothers. That's an absolutely immoral, illogical thing to do. I would guarantee that when we look at that actual baseline of what lockdowns might have saved, the 36,000 or whatnot, that number will be exceeded by the increases in murders, drug overdoses, which reached 70,000 last year in the States, so on, that we see as a result of this. That's not even counting the untreated heart attacks and so on down the line. So the plain reality is that we could save 30,000 lives every year by just telling free citizens of fighting age they couldn't leave home. You know, think of the brawls, think of the automobile wrecks, the truck crashes, you know, shootings here, so on, and stabbings in the UK, so on down the line. But the reality is you can't do that because it's wildly idiotic and immoral. So hopefully we'll learn from this. Hopefully we'll have a more targeted system of protections. What I'm worried about here now, and this is uh, this is not an original thought. This is um, Francis Foster on trigonometry from the UK, actually. But one of his arguments is that for the Brit and American governments, lockdown has now kind of entered the repertoire. So it is something that you know citizens will tolerate without rioting. 
Um, and there have been different stages, like armed police with guns in the USA, where you had to test something out and see the reaction to it. Will people tolerate this? This is now something that people have shown they're willing to tolerate. So, I mean, this sounds like a right-wing fantasy, but why wouldn't we see climate lockdowns, for example? You know, I, I can see the ads now, at least in the urban USA, like, you know, against a threat greater than COVID. You have, you know, Thor or Black Widow on the placard. You know, be a hero, be a climate justice hero. <laughs> you know, in the USA, people like big cars. So, like, you, th- will there be some kind of purchase program or trade-in program under, you know, Black Widow holding up a plant, you know, be a climate <laughs> hero? You know, like, I, I 100% guarantee this will happen. At least the crackdowns on vehicular emissions and so on, driving once per three days as urban Mexicans had to for some period of time, as I recall, maybe lockdowns. But I I think it is a bad thing that citizens just said, "Okay, you can tell us all to stay home for a year. Will Riley, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.